And this morning, our study in the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1. We won't focus very much on verse 1. Uh, we covered the introduction and the, the historical background of Isaiah that's mentioned in verse 1. We covered in Sunday school some weeks ago. And so we'll focus on verses 2 through 9 today. I'll begin reading Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, you are good and you do good. We ask you to teach us your statutes. Help us to know your word and to understand its meaning. Help us to know your commands and what you are calling us to do today. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit and that we would indeed take care how we listen that your spirit would work in our hearts to plant the gospel within us and that this might bear fruit a hundredfold in our lives. We ask these things through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul begins his letter to the Galatians saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. As many of you may know, Paul often begins a letter 
with some pleasantries. Uh, he begins by telling who he is and then says a greeting and then often gives a thanksgiving and thanks God for the church. But in Galatians, he has no time for that kind of pleasantry. He has no time for thanksgiving to God because he is astonished. He's astonished that a church or churches in Galatia are so quickly deserting the gospel and the stakes are high. And so Paul needs to get down to business. He needs to tell them to listen up. It's like when a coach might be watching his team, a baseball team, lose 16 to nothing. And when they go back into the locker room, he's not going to say something like, well, guys, you, you played some good defense today. No, there, there was no good defense. There was no good pitching. There was no good hitting. Everything was terrible. And so the coach is going to come in and say, come on, guys, what are you doing? You've got to do better than this. And so that's the kind of thing Paul does as he begins his letter to the Galatians. Listen up. This is serious. You're turning to a different gospel. And Isaiah starts his book in a very similar way as Paul starts Galatians. We have this, this very brief introduction in verse 1 of the historical details. But look how he starts. Verse 2, his very first sermon, at least the one that he's writing down to begin his book. He says, hear, O heavens, give ear, listen up. The Lord speaks. God is speaking. You need to listen. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, others that we call the major prophets, their books begin with nice stories, interesting stories of how they were called to become prophets of God. Isaiah's, what we would consider the call, comes in chapter 6. Isaiah doesn't want us to begin this book with a nice story, as an amazing story as chapter 6 is. But he wants to begin the book with a command. Listen. Hear. Because God speaks. There's a story of uh, Scottish preacher Robert Bruce in the late 1500s. He was preaching in Edinburgh to the King of Scotland. The King of Scotland was a member of his church. And the King of Scotland was not a very godly man. And so he would come to church and he would just kind of sit through it and and there's a story that one time he began talking to the person beside him and he was kind of making fun of Robert Bruce's sermon and so Robert Bruce stopped his sermon looked at the king of Scotland and he said the lion of Judah roars and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent before him and that is what Isaiah is saying to us. Listen up. Even if you're a king, you need to hear the word of the Lord because God speaks. 
He calls upon heaven and earth to give ear. And even in that phrase, there is so much meaning. He is comparing himself to Moses because Moses in Deuteronomy 32 begins his uh, sermon or song with this same phrase calling upon heaven and earth to listen, to be witnesses to what God is saying to Israel. In that first word, to hear, we have one of the main themes of the book of Isaiah. One of the main themes is that Isaiah wants us to understand that our eternity and our salvation depends upon how we hear the word of the Lord. When we get to that call in chapter 6, after Isaiah sees the holiness of God, God gives him that commission and he tells him in chapter 6 verse 10 that Isaiah is going to preach to people and Isaiah is to say to them, keep on hearing, but do not understand. God is telling Isaiah that he's going to preach to a people and through his preaching, it's actually going to cause their ears to be stopped up. Because they're going to refuse to listen. They're going to refuse to listen because through the preaching of Isaiah, God is hardening their hearts and uh, uh, stopping up their ears so that they will not be able to hear and not be able to turn lest they then be healed. This is Isaiah's ministry to preach to people who won't listen. And then we see that it's another, that's the main theme, one of the main themes of the book, based upon how it comes up again at the end of the book. We have the new heavens and new earth mentioned in Isaiah 65, just as he mentions heaven and earth here in verse 2, listening. And in chapter 66, the very last chapter of the book, we also have the mention of the heavens and the earth. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. God says, and then God says this in Isaiah 66, verse two, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word. So Isaiah is preaching to people who will not hear. But God calls us to listen, to tremble. He calls even heaven and earth to give ear and to be witnesses. Heaven and earth obey when God speaks. You remember in Genesis 1, all God said was let there be light. All God has to do is speak. And heaven and earth come into existence. Every day, God calls the sun to come out and rise. Every night, he calls the moon and the stars to shine. Every day, he tells the plants that they need to grow, and they do it. They give ear. But the children of Adam, Adam's race, they stop up their ears and will not hear the word of the Lord. And so we see that hearing is one of the main themes of the book. 
And we also see that here in these first nine verses, the rebellion of mankind against God. The rebellion of people who will not listen to God. That's what verses 2 through 9 are focusing on. We want to look at mankind's rebellion in these verses, and then we'll see at the end, verse 9, how God still saves rebels like us. So let's look uh, at mankind's rebellion uh, starting in verses 2 to 4. The first image that Isaiah gives us is that Israel is like rebellious children. Rebellious children. I'll read verse 2 again. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. The Lord speaks. And here's what he says. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. He's talking about the nation of Israel. First and foremost, he uh, called them. He made them into a nation. He rescued them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness. He, he raised them, so to speak, by, by taking care of them in the wilderness, by giving them the covenant at Mount Sinai. Then he brought them into the promised land, a land full of many blessings. He gave them kings that brought prosperity, like kings David and Solomon. And what did Israel do? They responded with rebellion. They responded with idolatry, forsaking the Lord. Instead of thanking God for all these blessings, they rebelled against him. They forgot him. They sinned against him. They are like rebellious children, children that you raise, children that you bring up. And yet then they grow up and they rebel against you, ungrateful for all that you've given them. For everything you've done. So they're like rebellious children. And then we have another metaphor in verse 3. A picture of these animals. He says the ox knows its owner. The donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Kids maybe you have read some fables or you read some children's books and oftentimes animals are compared to having human qualities and so there are some images used in fables like for the fox the fox is crafty or there's the owl the owl is a wise owl well God doesn't pick the owl to describe Israel because Israel is not wise. But instead, God picks an ox and a donkey. Oxen, relatively speaking, are not that smart. They spend their whole day walking in straight lines. And they turn around and they pull a plow going through a field. That's what an ox does. The ox has a lot of muscle, not a lot of brains. But even the ox knows its owner. The ox will come when the owner tells it to, to plow that field. The ox will go back to his pen at the end of the day because the ox is smart enough to recognize his owner. But not Israel. Israel doesn't even recognize 
that God created them, loves them, and owns them. Then he uses the image of the donkey. The donkey knows its master's crib. Donkeys aren't relatively that smart either. The role of a donkey, especially back then, they weren't little cute little animals for you to feed and ride on. The, the role of a donkey was to be a beast of burden, to carry sacks of grain on the back. That's the donkey's job. The donkey is not sitting at a desk solving math problems. He doesn't need a lot of brains for that job. He just needs to carry heavy stuff. But even this donkey recognizes his master's crib, the manger, the feeding trough. When the master pours the grain into that trough, the donkey knows, that's my meal. And he goes and he eats his meal. And God's saying, but you people, you people, if I say come for dinner, you run the other way. I'm the one that feeds you. I I provide the food for you and you won't even come. You won't even listen to me. And why won't they listen? Because it's God who said it. Well, if God's telling me to come to dinner, I'm not going to do it. That's, That's the rebellion of the people of Israel. If God's telling me to plow this field, I'm going to walk the other way. Make sure I don't plow a field that God commands me to plow. Worse than an ox and worse than a donkey. The church fathers saw in verse 3 a prophecy of Christ. That the donkey knows its master's crib. That Christ would come, the Son of God would come and become man and would be born in a manger, a feeding trough. And so they have these sermons and they they talk about how the Son of God, if you think about it, is the master of that donkey. He is the owner of the ox and the donkey. And when the Son of God as man in the form of the the baby Jesus, lay in that manger. The donkey came to Jesus. But Israel, in Jesus' day, Israel rejects God when even the donkey is coming to recognize Jesus as its master. Now, to be honest, uh, the Bible isn't quite clear that the, the donkeys were there. It looks nice in your nativity scene, but The Bible doesn't say that. It does say Jesus was born in a manger. But I think we can still get the main point. Why did the Son of God have to lay in a manger as baby Jesus? Because Israel was more rebellious than a donkey. And so, Son of God laid in the manger so that he might save people who rebelled against him. So this is another picture of Israel's rebellion. And then he goes on and he continues with this picture of rebellious children in verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. The word ah is, uh, doesn't quite get across the emotion 
the word in Hebrew is hoy. That's a great word. Hoy. It's like the noise that a mother would make if she's baking a cake, walks out of the room and finds her toddlers grabbing the cake and throwing it all over the floor and all over the walls. She would walk in and she'd, ah! That's the noise. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what God is saying through Isaiah. Ah! What is with these people? What am I going to do about these people? And then the next word is another good word. In Hebrew is goy. So the first two words of verse 4, hoy, goy. And the word goy means nation. And in, especially it's often used as referring to Gentile nations. So the next line, when he uses the word people, that's, that's usually what he calls Israel. They are a people. But here he calls them a nation. Goyim. Gentiles. In other words, they are acting like pagans. They are a sinful nation. So God looks at them and he says, Hoy goy, what am I going to do with these people? He calls them a sinful nation. Now remember in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, he said, I'm calling you to be a holy nation. And the holy nation has become a sinful nation. A nation defined by its sin. And in the next phrase, he will say they are laden with iniquity, covered in sin. They are like a donkey. A donkey burdened down with heavy sacks. But the burden here is sin. Covered and weighed down by sin. This is the nation of Israel. He then says they are an offspring of evildoers. Israel, the name Israel, is the name of Jacob. The nation of Israel was from the family of Jacob, who was from the family of Abraham. Israel was supposed to be the offspring of Abraham, but now they're called the offspring of evildoers. Jesus makes the same point about Israel in his day. In John chapter 8, he says, Do not call Abraham your father. You're of your father the devil. And of course, literally, physically, ethnically, Abraham was their father. But spiritually, they are the offspring of the devil. They are the offspring of Satan. They are the, the seed of the serpent, not of the seed of Abraham. So the offspring of evildoers in, I, in, in Isaiah's day, the offspring of Abraham is the offspring of evildoers. Children who are corrupt. And so, though they were a holy nation, though they were owned by God, fed and raised by God, he says at the end of verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They despised the Holy One of Israel. So 
Isaiah is making the point here that Paul makes in Romans 9. When he says about Israel, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even from their race, the Christ. Israel has all of these privileges. They had all of these blessings. And yet, they choose to reject and despise the God who gives them all those blessings. So before we move on, I think we can talk here about how this can apply to us. It doesn't apply to those who are true believers in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you're a true Christian, you are not, at this point, one of these people who is covered in iniquity and and full of sin. But in Christ, you have been cleansed, you've been made new. It could apply to some here. I don't think the members of our church, but some here that maybe I don't know you or I don't know you well enough to know your spiritual state. It could apply to you in the sense that you have many privileges from God. You hear the word of God. You know things about God. Maybe you have been raised uh, learning about God. And yet you are continuing to rebel against God. But I think we can apply this passage to all of mankind without Christ. And for those of us who are Christians now, we can say this is who we were. God created us. God sustained us. In him we live and move and have our being. And what thanks did we offer to God? We rebelled. We despised him. We rejected his commands and we disobeyed his laws and we questioned his goodness. So we, outside of Christ, we were like the nation of Israel. And those of you who may be sitting here today who may not have Christ, you may be just like this right now. You are borrowing breath and life from God. And you are despising your lender. He gives you these things. He's lending these things to you. And your thanks is instead to reject him and to sin against him. Do not continue despising and rejecting the Lord. So we have the first image of rebellious children. The second image is of sick bodies. Verses 5 and 6. He says, why will you be still struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The image in verse 5 is a fever in the head. When you have a high fever in the head that goes really high and goes on for a really long time, it can be deadly. And the heart that is weak, if your heart is not beating, it can be, it will be deadly. A, a weak heart will kill you. And so the, the sick head, the feverish head, the, the weak heart means that the most important parts of you, the most vital parts of you are totally infected 
with this disease called sin. He says in verse 6, it's from the head to the toe, meaning every single part of this metaphorical body is infected with this disease. And even more than that, there are open wounds that are not being bound up. No ointment, no bandages are being applied to these wounds. Now, why would someone not do that? Well, it's only if they don't really understand that they have that wound. If they are ignorant that there's a gash on their body, they're not going to go bandage it up. If they somehow think, oh, it's not really that bad, they're not going to bandage it up. And so this is the problem. Not only is the whole body sick, but the sick person doesn't even think that they are sick. The sinner doesn't even know how sinful he is. And so these verses tell us some things about the depth of our sin. First thing it tells us is that all of us is affected. All of us is affected. I don't mean all of us are affected. That's true. But every part of you is affected by sin. This is what we call total depravity. You are totally depraved. Every part of you. Total depravity doesn't mean that every single person is going around being as evil as they possibly can be every second of their life, just concocting more and more evil things to do and how they can murder and steal from everyone around them. That's not what it means. But it means that you, in your totality, are ravaged by this disease of sin. The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. From head to toe, you are full of sin outside of Christ. And so you're thinking, you don't think clearly, you don't think about reality because of sin infecting you. Uh, you can't come to understand truth. Your heart is infected. What you desire, what you care about, what you love, and your will, what you choose to do. You, you as a sinner will always choose sin. That's what we mean by total depravity. You are so sick that you don't even realize you're sick. And so you will continue to do the things that make your body sick, spiritually speaking. You will continue sinning and sinning and sinning. And so the only hope for people who are like this, for, for all of us, is that we must be made new. We must be given a new nature. God has to intervene. People who don't realize that they have these gashes on their bodies aren't going to ask for someone to bandage them up. People aren't going to see that they need grace from God or forgiveness of sins or for a Savior to die for them if they don't think there's anything wrong with them. And so this is the problem of our sin. We are so sinful that we can't even go to the source of healing unless God first 
comes and changes us and makes us new. Second, related to that, that shows the depth of our sin is that we are ignorant of what sin is. Without Christ, before we are Christians, we don't know how to define sin. We call good evil, and we call evil good. And we can look around at culture and society and see how everyone defines good however they feel like it. And people are like the fish in the water. The fish doesn't know that he's in water. You ask him what water is, he can't explain to you. You ask Unbelievers are us without Christ. What's right, what's wrong, they have no idea and there's no way for them to explain it. It's whatever they can come up with, whatever they feel like. And so we see people continuing to have no clue what the law of God says about right and wrong. If you think that you're a good person, if you're here Today, you're you're listening to this sermon. You think that you are a good person. You're the person of verse 6 who thinks you have no wounds. And that really just shows the depth of your depravity, the depth of your sin. So for us as Christians, we need to remember that when we are talking to people, and even with our own, in our own lives, we need to remember that we should never minimize the problem of sin. We need to show people and make people understand the darkness of sin and the darkness of the human heart. People aren't going to want the gospel. They're not going to need the gospel. They're not going to understand the real gospel if they don't understand the seriousness of their sin. So they are like a sick body. The third image uh, that Isaiah uses is in verses 7 to 8, when he says that they are desolate cities. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Here we have a picture of judgment. Judgment that comes from God on these rebellious people. Uh, the judgment is a desolate city, they, cities that have been invaded and destroyed. Historically, we don't really have any clues as to when that was. Remember that Assyria many times would come and invade Judah and Israel and invade Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly which one that this is talking about. But it says foreigners have devoured your land. Assyria has come as the judgment of God upon rebellious Israel. And so it's desolate. He calls Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. And that word daughter there tells us how much God cares for his people in Jerusalem. He loves her. And it also tells us how vulnerable Jerusalem is. A daughter out there, standing alone, in the midst of all of these 
warriors and violent people, that is not a safe place for the daughter. And so this is the condition that the daughter of Zion is left in. He then compares it to a booth in a vineyard, a lodge in a cucumber field. And it's not exactly clear exactly what that means. It could mean Jerusalem is standing and everything else has been destroyed. So imagine a, an empty field. And so they would have these sheds where the, the worker would go every now and then to, to make sure that the crop did not get stolen or that the crop did not get eaten by birds. And so here you have this shed in the middle of a field, a desolate field. And so it could be saying, that's all that's there. It's only this shed that is left, only Jerusalem that's left, and everything's destroyed. Or it could be also saying, Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, That this booth in the vineyard has been abandoned. It's been left alone, and it's got vines crawling all over it because nobody has gone to see it. So either way, you get the picture that this is bad. The enemy has come, and God's judgment has come. And this is the picture of what happens to all mankind that rebels against God. What's happening with Israel is true of what happens with everyone. Everyone is a rebel against God. Everyone will one day face the judgment of God. And as we'll see in the next verse, this judgment is going to be like the judgment that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah, pointing us forward to how each one of us will one day die and our souls will go before the judge of all the earth. And for those who are continuing to rebel against God and who have not found their hope in Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell, a place of torment under the curse of God. This is what Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of for every man and woman. Who rebels against him. God's judgment is coming. But finally we see in verse 9. That there is a remaining remnant. He says if the Lord of hosts. Had not left us a few survivors. We should have been like Sodom. And become like Gomorrah. Verses 2 to 8 are a depressing picture. It's a bleak picture. Imagine verses 2 to 8 being at the top of the webpage of CNN. Imagine it's at the front page of the newspaper. The state, the condition of our nation. Imagine a president giving the State of the Union address And he says, well, folks, all our children are rebels. We're dumber than oxen. And even donkeys know where to get food, but we ignore our master. Our nation is a sinful nation. Just filled with iniquity and filled with evil. 
We're just breeding more and more of Satan's offspring. We're just a bunch of corrupt children filling this land. Everyone in our nation hates God. Our nation is really, really sick. Head to toe, everybody in our nation is, as, is, is completely affected by sin and evil. People are sick, and they don't even know that they need help. And so they don't go for help. So I'm here to tell you, our nation is now desolate. There's nothing. Look out your windows. Everything's destroyed. It's all gone. And there's some brimstone coming. Fire is taking over our land. Brimstones are falling out of heaven. That's the state of our union. What's he going to say? Have a nice day. God bless America. What do, what do you do? But this is the state of the union. And I'm not just talking about America, but this is the state of the world, of all mankind. And so in that bleak picture, we have the grace of verse 9. The Lord of hosts has left a few survivors. Isaiah compares Israel to Sodom, a picture of destruction from Genesis. Remember that God said to Abraham, if there were ten righteous people, he would not destroy Sodom. And so the fact that he did means that there were not even ten righteous people in Sodom. Remember that Sodom was a Gentile nation, a, a pagan nation. And Isaiah is comparing the people of God, the land of Israel, to be like a pagan nation doing these abominable deeds that were done in Sodom. And so, Israel's sin is like Sodom. Israel's judgment is coming like Sodom. God burned Sodom to the ground. There was nothing left standing except for those few who escaped and so the difference here in verse 9 is not between Israel and Sodom's sin. No, that was the same. It was not between Israel and Sodom's destruction. That was the same. The only difference is that there were a few more survivors. God left a few survivors in the nation of Israel. God preserved a remnant, a very small group who loved him, followed him, knew his grace. Isaiah, Isaiah's family, Isaiah's disciples, maybe some others. But there were some survivors from Sodom, from Israel being destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice the subject of verse 9. The subject of the sentence. Isaiah doesn't say, Phew, good thing I ran out of that place quick, or else I would have been like Sodom. Isaiah doesn't say, Wow, it's, it's good that we were bright enough to see the signs 
and smart enough to get out before the brimstone fell on Israel. No, Isaiah is not the subject. The godly people are not the subject. The subject is the Lord. It's the Lord who left survivors. It's the Lord and only the Lord who acted. He intervened. Everyone else was in the city. Everyone else had the brimstone flying towards them. Everyone else has having their homes burned up. Every single person is rebellious. Mankind is facing an eternity in hell and a judgment from God. And the only difference is that the Lord of hosts intervenes and saves. This is what we call the doctrine of election. God intervenes. God decides. He purposes that there will be some. Sometimes it's a few. Eventually it'll be many. But he intervenes that a few would survive the judgment. God brings his salvation. For some people, the doctrine of election makes them angry. Well, if God can save everyone, and if it's all up to God, why doesn't God just save everyone? How can God be loving and not save everyone? And then, it, of course, usually gets very personal. Well, how can God not save my mom? Or why doesn't God save my child or my brother? My family members are really going to go to hell and God could have done something about it and he didn't. And so the doctrine of election can make some people angry. But we have to understand election in light of verses 2 through 8. All mankind is rebelling against God. All of us are sick. All of us are dying. All of us are headed for hell, and we deserve it. All of us have rebelled so much that we've despised and forsaken the God who has given us good things and has given us much time to turn to him and to repent, and yet we still rebel and rebel against him. And with all of us facing the brimstone coming our way, and then to have God say, no, I'm going to reach out and rescue you. It's not a cause for us then to turn to God and get angry at him. But to say, God, why would you save me? Why did you save me? When everybody else is just like me. And deserves that judgment. Thank you God. That you saved me. McChain wrote in that hymn. When I hear the wicked call. On the rocks and hills to fall. When I see them start and shrink. On the fiery deluge brink. Then Lord shall I fully know. Not till then. How much I owe. All that you owe. You owe to God. 
when you see everyone else on the brink of hell just like you. And God grabbed you, rescued you, saved you. And you are part of the remnant. You are a survivor. You thank God for his grace. By God's grace, he sent his son to die on the cross to deliver us from this present evil age. A Christian can say Christ died for me because he loved me. Friends, do you know that that's true for you? Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself? The most the thing that you most need to be sure about is whether or not you will face the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, whether you will spend an eternity in hell. Be absolutely sure that you know that Christ died for you and this is the only way for you to be saved from your sins and that you are following him, trusting him for your salvation and with your life. God has left a few survivors. May we give him thanks. May we praise him for his grace. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we who are in Christ praise you for your eternal love, for rescuing us when yet we were children of wrath, rebellious just like the rest of mankind. We pray as we sung earlier that you would help us to know more and more of how much we owe to your grace. Oh Lord, we pray that you would save all who are listening. Rescue them from the fire. We pray, Lord, that they would be among the remnant. We know that you have power to overcome the rebellious heart. You have done it for us. We pray that you would do it for many more. That all these things would be for your glory. We would praise you for your grace. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.